Welcome to TES Podagogy. Today my guest is Courtney Norbury, Professor of Developmental Language and Communication Disorders at UCL. Hello Courtney. Hello. So today we're going to talk about a range of uh, language challenges a child may have Mm -hmm. in in a classroom and specifically about developmental language disorder. Should we start, for those who didn't read the very good TES feature on it a few months back, do you want to explain what developmental language disorder is? it's not a new thing, obviously, but the terminology is, is new. And yes. just to give us an idea of prevalence, of what, what sort of, um, I don't want to use the word symptoms, but what sort of uh, signifiers it might have. Okay. Um, so developmental language disorder is used as a term when children aren't developing languages you would expect them to be. Mm. So in real terms, they tend to use shorter utterances. They might have trouble remembering what you've said or understanding um, what you've asked them to do. Um, they might use very non-specific vocabulary. Um, and basically, this just results in difficulties communicating mm-hmm. with other people. Um, in our research, we looked at how many children starting school were affected, and we found that 7.5% of children had a language disorder, so the language skills were not as you would expect for their age, and we didn't have another explanation for why that might be. And another 2.3% of children had a language disorder that was associated with another condition, for example, autism or Down syndrome or something like that. So just under 10% of children were having some kind of difficulty with language Mm. that impacted on their everyday communication. And that translates to roughly two children in every classroom with very significant language needs. And what other condition, you know, if you, if I, I take it we're talking about the ages between like five and 10 here where these problems start emerging? Well, you can usually start to see them prior to school okay. entry, um, but certainly from school entry, they tend to be quite persistent. Mm-hmm. So a child in uh, reception or year one who has significant language needs is likely to have difficulties with language throughout their school career. Okay, and the this is different to a child simply not having the... Uh, the home background where they've been exposed to enough vocabulary or enough enough language to to uh, function within the curriculum. Right. So that's that's a complicated issue, yeah. John. Um, so you do see um, more children with language disorders coming from backgrounds where there's a lot of socioeconomic disadvantage, but that likely reflects both environmental influences and probably genetic influences as well. So okay. we know that developmental language disorder. Um, is influenced by genetic vulnerabilities. And we also know that children who have language disorders become adults with language disorders. And if you think about how important language is for your job, for communicating with other people, it's not surprising that adults with language disorders often find it hard to get into those kinds of jobs that would get you into a higher socioeconomic bracket. And also we know that there's a big overlap between language disorder and reading difficulties. So if you're a parent who has a language problem themselves, then talking to children in a sophisticated way, shared book reading, all of those things just become much more challenging. Now that's not to say every child with a language disorder comes from that kind of background or has parents who themselves have difficulty, but it's just more likely. So it's very hard sometimes to tease those two things apart. I guess it's progress, is it? So if you have... If you're you're the reception lead teacher and the children come in and you've identified children who may need a little bit more help with language, you expect those children to to improve at a certain rate perhaps or, you know, reach a certain level by a certain point and those that aren't, you then start looking for 
potential other things going on. Yeah, and actually um, often what, pa- what teachers will recognise is that the child's having difficulties with learning, might have difficulties with peers, might have difficulties with behaviour, difficulties with reading. So they might not always think, oh, that must be an underlying language problem, mm. but very often it is. So teachers will recognise that this child's not progressing as I would like them to, and really that's very likely to be an underlying language difficulty. And you're right, progress is an interesting thing. So in our study, we've been following children up from reception to um, year three. Mm-hmm. We're actually now testing them in year six, but oh, we wow. don't have those data yet. Um, but anyway, between um, reception and year three, what you see is that everybody's making progress, but everybody's progressing at the same rate. So those children who come in with difficulties are still about two years behind their their more able peers at the end of year three, even though they are improving. Just, just closing the gap is a really no, so tricky not, thing to do. Up. They're not catching up. They're not catching up. So yeah, those kids who are making progress, but, but really not making that faster rate of progress, they are probably the children who are more likely to get a diagnosis of language disorder. And these are children who might have had dyslexia interventions or speech and language therapy or... Um of some of the other interventions common for language, I guess, you know, targeted interventions for vocabulary. Yeah, so our study isn't designed to evaluate intervention, and it's fair to say that it's pretty variable <laughs> what, what children get. So certainly by year three, many of the, the children with the most significant needs had been to see a speech and language therapist and were in some kind of alternative education provision where they were getting a lot of extra help. Um, and that's, that is probably one reason why their rate of progress is the same. Mm. It's just in order for them to catch up, they have to learn language faster than everybody else and that's hard if you've got a biological disposition to be learning differently and maybe some of those socioeconomic challenges we've been talking about. And so developmental language disorder itself isn't new obviously but there was obviously you know there's a big body of work that aimed to sort of give it a term or a label as Mm -hmm. such to to group these um, challenges that perhaps were were scattered around in terms of um, diagnosis if you want to call it that. So this kind of started um, with some colleagues, uh, including Dorothy Bishop, who I'm sure you know. Mm. Um, And we used to talk about the taxi driver test. So if you got in a taxi, the taxi driver says, what do you do? Mm. And I say I work um, with children who have developmental language disorder. No idea what that means. Whereas if I said with dyslexia or with autism, Mm. they'd be, oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of that. My cousin has this. Mm. So they don't maybe know the nuance of what dyslexia or autism means but they know that it's an important thing and one of the reasons that we had this failure of public recognition was because there were lots of different terms about so some people might say language difficulties some people would say specific language impairment Um, so lots of different terms for kind of the same thing was there room in there as well for people to assume that it was just poor teaching or just poor parenting? Uh, Lots of people assume that it's poor parenting Mm. for sure Um, and indeed when we write um, in broadsheet newspapers about language disorder you can see the comments underneath that are really just saying terrible things about parents parents don't cause language disorder Mm -hmm. right it's very much more complicated Um, so we had a campaign which Dorothy led which was really to get consensus in the field it involved educators it involved parent organizations it involved speech and language therapists it involved researchers to really say can we get an agreement on terminology and some agreement on diagnostic criteria so that we can speak with one voice and raise awareness of the kind of needs that these children have. 
Um, so that's why we settled on developmental language disorder or DLD. And there is like a debate, isn't there, about whether you give something a label. And I, you know, I go into special schools a lot and they, they tend to say, you know, we treat the child in front of us, but at least if a, a label will give you a rough idea of where you're going, your starting point. Absolutely, and I think parents benefit from having a label as well, mm. and it gives them something that they can then look for further information or can be directed to particular services. It is a kind of shorthand for saying this is a problem that needs addressing, and mm. the most likely thing you're going to need to focus on is language, not exclusively. And you're right that even with that label, what teachers want to do is just look at the child in front of them and say, what are the strengths, what are the areas of need? In terms of sort of how these children are identified then, you, you mentioned behaviour was one of the aspects. Mm-hmm. And in the feature we looked at this as well, that this may be a child that isn't doing as they're asked and you put it down to uh, another cause, maybe just a child wanting to act up or maybe something in the child's home life, you know, you, you think, oh, maybe a safeguarding concern. But what you're saying is actually it just might be a language disorder happening there. It might be, and it's likely to be influencing it. So if you think that children with language disorders very often don't understand particularly complex instructions, and they might therefore not remember all the elements of what you've asked them to do. So they're not complying mm. with what you've asked them to do. And the assumption often is they're just being naughty, okay. whereas it might really be that they really haven't understood that. And the other thing to remember is that behavior is communication in itself. So if you can't express your need, or people have misunderstood you, or you've misunderstood what's going on, then then sometimes children have no option but to express that in another way. Mm. So they can't really think through how to negotiate, how to get that truck off the child that they, they want. So it just lash out and hit the child and take the truck and run. So that can be perceived as very naughty behaviour, but it might be that this child doesn't have any other language skill that will enable him to get the thing that he wants. Mm. And so you mentioned as well that these children may speak in smaller utterances or, or shorter yep. sentences. Are they less complex sentences as well? And are they, yep. uh, is there a, you know, is it reciprocal in the sense that they, when they're trying to comprehend what people are saying, it has to be short and their own utterances tend to be short? Yes, indeed, indeed. So breaking things down for children is really important. If you try and get them to do three things at once, they might hold on to the first thing and the rest of it's gone. So breaking things down is really important to help children functionally in the classroom. But yes, you're absolutely right. So they say less and what they say is less complex. Um, They tend to have more trouble learning words, particularly from context, because they don't understand the context that they're reading. They won't have very complex grammatical um, structures in their sentences or their output. Um, sometimes they make speech errors. Those are very obvious and easy for people to understand, but not always. Um, sometimes like their speech is very articulate. It sounds like a very complex diagnosis because there must be so many many other things that they could, many labels they could fall into along the way. I mean, are these just the children who we get to a certain age and we think, okay, we we haven't found a, a cause yet for why this child's not actually in the curriculum and maybe speaking in shorter senses or perhaps not at all, or is being persistently misbehaving? Yeah. Are these the children who you sort of, you know, at some point just go, well, this is the last box we can put them in? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think, I think actually um, children who aren't developing language is a red flag for lots of things. Mm. So depending on how severe it is, many of them will get into clinics quite early. Um, and it is the, the thing that will start a kind of differential diagnosis. Um, 
not always. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes when kids get to school, they might fly under the radar for a long time, particularly if they're just very quiet and sit in the background and they can kind of follow what other kids are doing. And so it might take a while to realize that there's a problem. Usually by the time children are starting to learn to read, somebody's recognized that this child isn't, isn't able to access the curriculum or do the things that we're asking them to do. So I think that um, recognizing that a child isn't learning as teachers are pretty good at doing that. Mm. Necessarily knowing that its language is a little bit harder, but to kids who aren't talking at all, you know, obviously people will, will raise that. And then it's a question of looking at all the other things that might be associated with, with that poor language. And it is the case that, that it's very rare to see children who have isolated language problems. So most children who have language problems might also have motor incoordination. They might have attention deficits. Mm. We've talked about behavior. They're likely to have reading problems. So it very rarely occurs in isolation. And that can make a precise di diagnosis quite difficult. Um, but I think usually, like I said, by year three, most people have identify the fact that language is the problem and are looking at ways to support that. And do we know why it occurs? Is this a working memory problem? Is this, is this a problem about processing speeds? I mean, uh, where does the problem lie, really? <laughs> well, that's a great question, um, one that we haven't really got a good answer to at the moment. Um, I guess the way I think about it is these are children who have, have a developmental disorder that means that their brain is developing differently in a way that makes language learning more challenging. Mm -hmm. And all of those things you mentioned might play a role and it might vary according to the child. So most children um, with language disorders definitely have problems with verbal memory, um, but the extent to which that's language and the extent to which that's memory is, is tricky. Some studies have shown that those memory deficits occur in nonverbal domains. Other studies don't show that. Um, speed of processing is an interesting one. We're actually looking at that with our scales data. And what we're finding is that um, speed of processing isn't causally related to language disorder, but it seems to be a marker for just different development. So where we saw speed of processing deficits in language disorder, those children also had attention deficits. Okay. So when things go together, that's when you see that speed of processing problem. And if we if we are struggling to ascertain like the, the, the root cause of this, how is that impact on how we build interventions to support these children? Yeah, well, you might know that um, there's been a lot of controversy in, in intervention around whether you treat what you think the root cause is or whether you treat the behavior in front of you. Okay. Um, so things like CogMed, which train up working memory, um, studies have shown that you can train working memory because can get better on the working memory tasks, but that doesn't transfer to the things that you might expect it to do. Course, so yeah. <laughs> so that, that improvement doesn't translate into better maths performance or yeah. better reading comprehension. So I think we're at the stage where we would want to say, well, what language skills does the child need to access the curriculum? Mm -hmm. And what can we do to boost learning of those language skills? And I, I would say that we can do that. I think you can train particular skills and kids can get better at using those skills. But whether that leads to a complete change in developmental trajectory, I don't, don't think we have evidence for that mm. yet. So there's a lot of work still to be done. So I was going to say, it sounds like we're in quite early stages of working out what this is, how we intervene with it, and 
perhaps the best support structures around that. Yeah, I would say that's true for most developmental <laughs> disorders. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's, you know, it's very definitely a work in progress. And I, I think it's like reading, I guess. We, we hope that we put in reading interventions in place and that we can cure the problem. And I guess what we're seeing is that you can make things better but those children very likely have different patterns of reading and difficulties with reading throughout their school careers. And I think language disorder looks very like that. So you can make small changes. You can help children to make some progress. You can help them to learn new things about language and, and by doing that, help them with their general learning. But curing language disorder, I think, is a long way off. I'm not sure we can do that yet. That leads me into my next question, which was, is this isn't just something primary school teachers should be concerned about then? Like you know, the secondary teachers looking down and saying, oh, you should have spotted that primary teacher and this should have been sorted by the time it got to us. This is an ongoing problem. It's an ongoing problem, for sure. Um, all, all the evidence to date suggests that language is fairly stable. Language disorder is persistent. Um, you can make a lot of progress in primary school, but it's very likely that those children will be going into secondary school and still have quite a big gap between them and their other peers and that they're likely to have even more trouble um, in secondary school because, of course, the nature of the language you need to be successful in secondary school changes. A lot of it is very abstract. By the time you get there, the, the stuff that you need to learn from text grows exponentially. Um, you're using much more formal syntactic structures to make academic arguments, um, and it just becomes much, much more difficult for them. And does this often get pigeonholed as well as a, as a sort of, I hate the term, but ability problem? So people are viewing these children as sort of, they're not capable of that level of thought. When they are, it's just the, the articulation. Or is, is, there an, is there an associated Absolutely. Problem? So if you were to speak to a young person with language disorder, and I've heard them say this, they say the hardest thing was that people thought I was stupid. Mm. And I'm not stupid. I just can't explain myself mm. and can't explain myself quickly. Um, and so I think that's a real problem, that the assumption is when you have somebody who's taking a long time to formulate an utterance, and it's not a very complicated utterance, the assumption will be that they're just not very bright. Mm. And, and unfortunately, that's not the case for most children with language disorder. And so a, sec a secondary especially, you shouldn't be, uh, you should find other ways perhaps of ascertaining what that child is capable of to get a, f a better picture rather than just sit this test, write me this essay or going by the sort of answers they're giving in class. Exactly, exactly. And remembering that, that those children will find written language very difficult as well. So looking at other ways to tap in that knowledge into that knowledge would be fantastic. And also I think um, for these kids, school can be quite hard because it's just taxing all the things mm. that they find difficult all the time. So if there's a way to find something that they do well and celebrate that, then that can really help with their esteem and their willingness to engage in the things that are more tricky. Mm, which brings us, I guess, to the current big debate about vocabulary and yep. um, whether teaching set lists of words and whether increasing vocabulary so that those children can go and understand more of what they're reading and then grow their knowledge almost themselves but also to access curriculum is the best way forwards and we, we've got a piece um, coming next week which argues well hang on we need to we need to hold back here a little bit because it's also about grammar and it's also about meaning and there's, there's it's more complex than just you know vocabulary is the medicine that's going to make it all better. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So vocabulary is hugely important. It's a building block of language. It's the conceptual knowledge that is foundation to many of the things that you need to learn within the curriculum. So I don't want to um, 
take away from the importance of vocabulary. But I think um, it's true that we can teach children vocabulary, but we don't have such good evidence that that will necessarily cascade down into things like necessarily reading comprehension. Inferencing is one that I always um, use as an example. So you can teach children the words that they need to use to make the inference, but unless you teach inferencing specifically, yeah. that might not just come naturally to them. And we, we would hope that by extending um, their knowledge of verbs that this would have an impact on grammar. I think what we're learning is that kids are very good at learning the things that you teach them, but that doesn't necessarily have the transfer to these other things that we would like it to. And I think that's probably particularly too true for children who have language disorders. So what you don't want to do is um, just assume that by teaching high quality vocabulary, which is very important, that that will have transfer. So if you want to teach a new grammatical utterance, then you need to teach that utterance. Mm. Use the new vocabulary that they've learned and then show them how to use it in more complex utterances. Or take new vocabulary that you've taught them and then show them how they can use that to infer something that's not explicit, explicitly stated in a text. So I think that it really is important to um, keep track of all of those things more pressure on teachers, I know, but really to think about oral language in its entirety. And, and yes, the focus on vocabulary is important, but don't ignore the other aspects of language. Is it about teacher explanations as well? I mean, if I'm editing a piece of writing and something's grammatically correct, but actually it's, it's quite a lot of work for a reader to get through that sentence, perhaps. Yeah. And I, I will simplify because the nature of the business is, you know, we want it to be an enjoyable read, a challenging read, but an enjoyable read. Is there a, a case as well where a teacher may may want to model a very um, high attaining explanation, but actually there's, for a lot of those developmental language disorder, uh, children with developmental language disorder, you, you're sort of overcomplicating what you're trying to say? Absolutely, but I think this is, um it's an issue that I, I see when I'm working undergraduate essays, right? Okay. <laughs> Very complicated, flowery language when you can just get to the point, but yeah. in a much more efficient sort yeah. of way. I think oracy is hugely important. And I think it's great that, you know, we have grammar and the curriculum and we're telling children about editing and, and about their awareness of different grammatical forms. But really the important thing is, why do you use that particular form? How does it help you to communicate your message in a, a more efficient and more effective way? And you're right that teachers modeling answers and saying, in this context, this would be a brilliant way to answer it. Um, it doesn't have to have a complicated sentence in this context, but in this context, you might want to use that, and here's why. So helping children to understand not only the different components of language, but when you use them and how you can use them most effectively, that would that's important for all children, but particularly for those children who won't necessarily make sense of that on their own. And is it important as well for teachers, I mean, are teachers the bridge between the sort of work you're doing and the parents in terms of how, how the teacher not just reacts to that child in the class and tries to scaffold their learning and support it, but also maybe scaffolds how that parent views developmental language disorder and scaffolds perhaps how that child is perceived um, because I yeah. imagine some parents may fall into the same trap of just thinking their child is, is low ability, if you know, I'm using inverted commas, uh, or falling into the trap of sort of a learned helplessness where oh, you can't do that or you can't do this because of the language disorder. Yeah, I think teachers are critical in helping parents to understand this and, and what it means. And, and this is one of the reasons for 
being very clear about terminology. So lots of parents will have said to us, we knew something was wrong, but there's no label for it. So we can't talk to anybody about yeah. it. So if we have a shared terminology, then that just opens the door for more conversation about what does this mean? What is the impact on the child's learning? What can you do at home? Where can we get extra help? So all of those things are really important. And, and yes, understanding for parents, um, you know, how language affects their access to the curriculum. And I think that's an important thing for teachers too. You know, when I started um, as a speech and language therapist many years ago, if I went into school, the kids would come out of English. And I used to say, but why only English? You know, languages in maths, languages in yeah. science. Um, so I think getting all of us really to have a better appreciation of what the language demands of the curriculum are and what the particular needs of a child, a particular child is and how we can meet those needs in different curriculum contexts. And uh, it's one of the things that English teachers always say, isn't it? It's like, it's not just our job. Oracy is not just our job and spelling is not just our job. And, you know, language isn't just our job. It has to be every teacher's responsibility. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can see that in the, the work that I do you know we're scientists but we still have to write and we still have to communicate in a way that everybody can understand um, so I think getting that message across as early as possible is really important and so while this research is ongoing did those teachers you know how many of these free out free maybe free children in every class how many of them are getting the diagnosis they need mm. and what should teachers be doing if they do have a child with that diagnosis while you know while the causations and the the interventions are being sort of formulated and researched yeah so um how many get a diagnosis in our study what we found was that in year one only about half the children that we identified had been referred to speech and language therapy oh, wow. and and there is there are many reasons why that might be the case so some of it might be around um, teacher understanding that the problems that they're seeing are language related some of it is around speech and language therapy provision so if it takes nine months to get an assessment, then teachers might be reluctant to refer. Mm -hmm. um, and there's work to do on both sides there, I think. Some of it is about parents. So some parents might recognize there's um, a difficulty, but that whole diagnostic process, as you can imagine, is quite stressful for parents. And some at that stage might not be ready. They might be thinking, well, with just a little bit more school and support, we'll get there. So. It's quite a complicated picture. There's no one reason for that. By year three, I think most of the kids that we'd identified had at least received some service. Um, so I think it's that, that where you're seeing the improvements, not where we would like it to be, that then people are more ready to take action. It's interesting that you said that there's you know, roughly a two-year gap for some of those children. You know, What if they had been intervened at EYFS? Yes, it's a very good question yeah. and one that I know is on the government agenda so what can we do early on to try and reduce that gap before children get to school so that's very exciting and and let's see I mean I think there will always be a gap but hopefully we can shrink it um, by is some considerable amount. Is diagnosis any harder at that age than at the age of seven because people say you know with something some of those language disorders you can you only really spot it when comprehension starts kicking in you know, they can read fine, but then you get to the point where, okay, do you understand it? And then they spot it. Is there any reason yeah. why we can't identify better at UFS? Well, I think um, before the age of five, there's just a lot of natural variation in children's language abilities. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's been challenging is that if you try to diagnose language disorder in three-year-olds, for say, 
about half of the kids that get a diagnosis end up being fine by the time they get to school, okay. even if you don't do anything. And that's just because there is so much variation, just like so much variation in when children start to walk, for example, but all kids end up walking. Mm. Um, so that makes it difficult to make a good diagnosis early on. By the time they get to school, it should be much easier to do, but then we know that it's persistent. So yeah. it's, it's kind of a paradox and it's a difficult yeah. one to address because when you can make the diagnosis very clearly, it's much harder to change the direction of travel. So I think what we're thinking now is somewhere around nursery time, things start to become more stable and you might be able to pick up the kids who are gonna have those longer term learning needs. The other thing that's really challenging, I think, is that if you want to change a language trajectory, it's going to take a lot of time and effort. So I don't know if you've ever tried to learn a second language. No, I'm <laughs> useless at it. So that's probably a good case in point. <laughs> but if you're trying to do that, you need to do it a lot. You know, mm. you have to have lots of practice over a long period of time. Quite immersive as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and you've got all the prerequisite cognitive skills you need to learn a second language. And it still takes a lot of time and mm. energy. And what we haven't figured out yet is how to provide that intensive support mm. with the kind of restrictions on resource that we currently have. I was so, going to say, because feasibly you could put all those three-year-olds you identify with problems in a intervention program, and perhaps the half that will resolve anyway, it's not going to harm them, but at the same time, it's a massive amount of resource going into something that's not actually needed. Exactly, and that that is the issue, because of course what people would like to do is put all that resource in there and then not have to worry about it later. Mm. But the fact is some children will always need support. So what you don't want to do is put all your eggs in one basket yeah. and then not have any support. And parents say, you know, the transition to secondary school was particularly challenging. Um, it's a challenging time, adolescence. And if you have language disorder, it just becomes harder. The support isn't always there. Um, and what you want to do is make sure that you have support at those vulnerable periods. Mm. Um, so it's a really tricky one. It's yeah. a, a difficult one for sure. And then for interventions, then at the moment, it's it's sort of teachers using their you know their their knowledge of the children and reacting to the specific needs until we get some yeah. solid findings. Or? So I think um, teachers actually, you know, what what we saw in our scales project was that even children who had multiple developmental concerns were making the same rate of progress as children who didn't have any concerns at all. Mm. So I actually think that teachers do a great job of teaching children and that they can differentiate enough to support those kids who are at the bottom. The difficulty is closing the gap. Mm. Um, and so for teachers, I think often what they where they can be most helpful is in providing scaffolds and support that allow children to participate and make sense of the curriculum. So they can do things like, if you're gonna have a tricky lesson to flag for those children the words that they're gonna to need to know and help them maybe with the support staff in the room to learn those words so that when they hear them in the lesson, they understand, they can keep up with what's going on and, and not think, well, I have no idea what that means. So yeah. the rest of the, the lesson goes. A proper, proper mixed ability teaching, basically. Yeah, exactly. You are, you're, not, you're not putting a threshold on what those children can achieve. Exactly. So that's where I think teaching can be most effective. And I think there are children who probably on the borderline where some very targeted interventions will be enough to keep them learning and in the mix and growing. There are a proportion of kids where I think extra help is necessary you yeah. know and in that, those cases thinking about how to, 
teachers can work together with speech and language therapists to think about, well, what is the big need that we need for this child right now? It might be something curriculum based. It might be that the child has no friends. So can we help them to use their language to make contact with their peers and, and get along with people better? So really working together to figure out what the priority is for that child at that point in time and then getting some specialist support to address those needs. And I guess the final question would be, you mentioned some year six data that you've got coming in. Yeah. When, when are you going to be reporting? Well, <laughs> hopefully we'll finish data collection over the summer. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we're really interested in with that group of children is how, so we know that by adolescence, many children with language disorders are at increased risk for social, emotional and behavioral problems. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, we're seeing those links fairly early on. Um, so we want to look at how stable those relationships are. But we're thinking about why is that? Why would you have a link between um, language skills and emotional understanding? And so what we're trying to tap in our year six assessment is how kids use their language to regulate their emotional states, mm. how they use language to describe how other people might be thinking and feeling, and how they use language to think about their own internal states. Um, and it's proving quite challenging. So we that can sounds see. fascinating. It is fascinating. It is fascinating. And it's really important because, because we know these children are at high risk, um, we then think, well, what happens if they get referred to something like CAMS? Well, most of the interventions we have are talking therapies. Mm. So how would children with language disorders then be able to access those therapies? So we're looking experimentally at how they might be able to use some of those strategies. But what we're finding for the kids with language disorder is very difficult, very difficult for them to tap in yeah. to how they feel and find the right words to explain it. So I think that's going to be fascinating. I can't wait to look at those data. I look forward to that. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much. Audi de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr.